hesitant about trying to ride a unicycle in public. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, recently you mentioned to me that somebody brought up a couple of words that were not in the book. Uh, it was portray and convey and talking about the way that those two words are used interchangeably, but that might not be appropriate. What did you come up with on that? Well, there's a sort of overlap where you can portray a scenario where something might happen that certainly is not literally painting a portrait, but it's metaphor, it's pretty common. Um, but people will also say he portrayed that he thought the investment was a bad one when they really mean he conveyed or he came across with the idea. And that is a little odd. I have certainly run into that and seen it in student writing and heard people say it. Uh, I don't think it's one of those things that gets you into a lot of trouble, but it is a little odd. I haven't written it up just because I'm not sure what I want to say about it. I don't know how common it is. I try to mostly, as you know, write about common errors. Um, I'm not sure how erroneous it is and how many people it bothers. It's just very occasionally that I'll encounter that. And it's one of those things that's really, I can't think of a way to search for it in Google <laughs> to see how many people are using portray in that way. It's just so subtle. It's just shades of meaning or a couple of words that could be construed to be synonymous. But there is a gradation of usage here where you cross the line and yeah, convey would be the better choice here rather than portray. And it's these are the kinds of words I want to talk about today because you have a whole, a whole lot of them, more than we can get through in the course of one podcast. But uh, I'd like to, from time to time, go down this list and talk about some of these words because this is some of the most interesting kind of error that there is in language usage, I think. Selecting the right word. Right. And speaking of selecting, let's just start with that one, because this is almost uh, sales speak or market speak. There's a difference between select and selected. Yeah, a store has got select chairs or recliners, let's say, on sale. And uh, what they really mean is selected. That is, some of their inventory has been chosen in order to be offered at a bargain price. But a select chair would be traditionally an outstanding one, one of the really fine ones. The selector sort of like the elect in society. Um, a select group of anything is going to be the very best. And if all you mean is from among a large group, you've selected out certain ones, then they're selected rather than select. I don't think a lot of people are very aware of this distinction, particularly because the word select used in this form of adjective is pretty uncommon. Uh, it's not something that is an everyday speech. So, um, you know, it's one of those little mild bump in the road kind of things. Sure, yeah, and it's something that you'll see on the big three-day weekend sales, you know, select this or that on sale. Uh, it just means that they were chosen from among the lot. It doesn't really mean they were select. 
Yes, although if you're a copywriter and you're trying to write an ad or put a notice on a reader board or something, the fewer letters, the better, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're going to be strongly tempted to drop that ED. Yeah. Uh, the next one I have down here, another, again, you know, shades of meaning here. And these words are often flipped around, uh, but there is a difference between reticent and hesitant. Yeah. Reticent traditionally means reluctant to speak. It means actually you're being held back. So something's holding you back and not wanting to, to say something or express yourself. And that can be in writing as well as speech. It can also mean uh, just generally reserved or restrained. Um, some conservatives argue it should only be applied to speech. So you wouldn't have a reticent manner. But I think that's going overboard. I think it certainly can be extended to say uh, somebody's just very reticent in their manner. Mm -hmm. But if you're nervous about doing something, you're hesitant. I'm hesitant about trying to ride a unicycle in public. Mm -hmm. It means that you think, oh, I'm not sure I really want to do that. And so hesitant is far more common. And if you're not sure which of these words to use, go with hesitant, because more often that's going to be what you're thinking of. Yeah, and I think part of the confusion is that they kind of sound the same, reticent and hesitant. Right. Uh, they both convey a sense of being reserved or held back, but reticent is I think associated more closely with sound, being actually quiet and you know reluctant to speak is perfect. Well, this may just be me, but I think of reticent as something that is almost imposed on you by your character that you don't have control over, whether as you might hesitate for something quite deliberately, thinking, okay, maybe I better not do this. And it's not that you're just have an overpowering uh, hesitation, but that you're saying, okay, I'm going to stop and think about this before I go ahead. And that definitely comes into play too. Uh, the next one I have on the list is one that I'm sure you have a lot to say about. Um, we'd like to talk about applying literary terms and correct application of those, uh, given your background. Legend and myth. There is a difference, right? Right. Well, there is in literature and in mythology and in the study of myths and, and legends. Um, in normal speech, there's also a distinction, which I'll get into in a minute, but a lot of times they overlap. They're not entirely interchangeable, but sometimes they are. But the technical definition of a myth is a traditional story whose importance lies in its significance. Uh, the myth of the fall of Eden, if you consider that a myth. Uh, the myth of the city on the hill in American politics, shining city on the hill. There are all these stories and images which may or may not be fictional, but they have a significance. They're symbolic in some important way. Now, a legend is a story which can be just a famous deed. And for instance, uh, the legend of Davy Crockett. Now, some of the things that are said of Davy Crockett, he didn't actually do. And you could say they were purely mythical, but he did do some extraordinary things, and they're still legendary. In common usage, myth usually implies fantasy. So if you're talking about Enrico Caruso being a legendary tenor, that's okay because there are tales about him. He was a great tenor, but it's also true that he was a great tenor. So it's not saying it's false. He 
It was not a mythical tenor. It was a legendary one. Hogwarts is a mythical school. It's fictional. So there may be legends about it. Legends may or may not be true. But where you can get into trouble is if you're in a mythology, theology, or literature class and you use the word myth to mean untrue story, then you'll get in trouble because teachers often want you to focus not on whether it's true or not. It's true significance of a myth lies not in its factuality, but its meaning for the culture that produces or adopts it. So uh, the important thing about, say, the, the myth of the Garden of Eden would be that it tells us something about how human beings came to be the way they are, not whether it actually happened. And that's pretty specialized, but if you are in a class where they're actually studying myths, it's important not to say things that make people think you're just dismissing myths as just simply untrue things that have no significance because they didn't really happen. Just in common parlance, though, I associate myth with, of course, you know, we all study Greek myth in school and those sorts of stories and legends with tall tales, like you mentioned Davy Crockett or Paul Bunyan, <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. The stuff of legend. Yeah, but Babe Ruth's pitching record could be the stuff of legend too, and it's real. <laughs> it's totally true, yes, right, yeah. His hitting and his pitching is stuff of legend. Uh, the next one you have is somewhat related, also in the arts. If you want to talk about music, you're going to make a distinction between a song and something you might call a work or a piece or a composition. Right. This is one. I'm not sure how common this is, but one of the pleasures of writing common errors in English usage is that I can get off my pet peeves. And as a teacher, I used to assign many of my classes to go to cultural events, and they could go to a play or an art exhibit or to a musical event and write a report on it. And they would go to a symphony concert, and a lot of them would say, um, well, the first song was Symphony Number no. 5 by Beethoven. That used to just drive me nuts because they had this notion that any piece of music can be called a song. The songs, of course, are pieces of music that you sing. Somebody sings. Um, instrumental numbers can be called, as you said, works, compositions, pieces. But a single piece can have several movements, and so you wouldn't call the adagio of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata a piece. And that's often confusing to first-time concert goers who aren't sure where one piece begins and another ends. So I had to not be too picky about that. But a movement of a work is just a piece of a piece. There's also another distinction that uh, I made in the book between music and singing. One of my wife's friends, I should say that my wife is a soprano, she's done a lot of singing. And one of her friends said, well, in the, in the church I went to, they didn't have music, just singing, as if singing was the kind of music. That struck me as odd because traditionally in earlier times, that is in earlier centuries, singing was the primary form of music. And if you look at the treatises on how to play musical instruments, you'll find that over and over they say that the, your highest achievement would be to sound like the human voice and things, songs, uh, were very popular. And then um, into the 19th and early 20th centuries, classical music 
Aside from the very specialized world of opera, instrumental music became more and more popular. And so most classical music that you're likely to run into these days is instrumental but not so in the popular world and I've never been clear why um, aside from surf music in the 50s and some techno and a few other things um, there's not been a lot of popular music that was just instrumental um, most really popular music is vocal so singing and music are identical in the minds of a lot of younger people yeah and uh yeah, the idea that music is only created by instruments is a little strange. Well, we'll switch gears, something totally unrelated here. But this is something that is, uh, it's bothersome because it can be very confusing. If somebody says, I left the door open, when they simply mean they left it unlocked, uh, that always kind of alarms me. <laughs> yes, well, the minute they left the house open by leaving the door unlocked. Yeah, so they were talking about the difference between open and unlocked or unlatched. Right. When it really bothers me is somebody, when you're driving in a car, says, oh, the back door is uh, open. <laughs> and I think, oh, my God, that's seriously a problem. The baby back there going to fall out? <laughs> uh, it means it's slightly unlatched. Yeah. I, you know, you're talking, not thinking. It's easy to just substitute the word open for unlocked, but uh, it's a distinction that's worth holding, I think, because you leave the house, you know, you call back and you say, well, uh, I left the door open, so make sure you lock it when you leave. It's, well, I left the door unlocked. Make sure you lock it when you leave. Right. Uh, how about the difference between religiosity and piety? Okay, religiosity is... Uh a word that's not used much anymore. I don't know that it ever was. And it was originally uh, being sort of pseudo-religious. Somebody was uh, exaggeratedly or ostentatiously showing off their piety was said to be engaging in religiosity. And I think uh, what happens is that some people will run into this term not realizing what it means and think, oh, well, that just means being religious. So, uh, you know, I admired her religiosity because she went to church three times a week. Mm. That would not be a proper use of religiosity. There's a good word much simpler for that, piety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's religiousness is not the same thing as religiosity. I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about the difference between drastic and dramatic? That's worth keeping, right? Holding on to that distinction. Yeah. Um, drastic and notorious have something in common in that they're both negative words that get used positively a lot of times and confuse or put off people who know the traditional meanings. Drastic means severe and usually has a negative or frightening association. So if you have to take drastic measures like cutting your arm off to get out of a tight crevice in a rock, um, they're almost always a drastic measures are going to have harmful side effects. So you shouldn't say that there was a drastic increase in holiday shopping when you mean to say that you're really happy that there was a lot of holiday shopping. And it gets used that way a lot. If there's a drastic rise in temperature, it would be dangerous. It shouldn't be just something that was surprising. Mm -hmm. 
So you say, wow, it went up to 90 degrees last week, and that was a drastic rise. That's making too strong a statement, so dramatic would make more sense in that case. And when people use a phrase like, it's a drastic improvement, they really mean dramatic improvement. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go from the useful pickiness to the kind of picky pickiness. What's the difference between avenge and revenge? I think this is one that's really easy to get confused. Yeah, I always have to stop and think about this one myself. So technically, when you try to get vengeance for people who've been wronged, you want to avenge them. That is, it's the people you like, whose side you are on, that you're avenging. Mm -hmm. And you're taking vengeance and revenging yourself on them, taking revenge. The revenge is what you do to the people who you're going after. You can also avenge a wrong. He avenged the murder by taking vengeance on the killer. Um, more people might be aware of this because of the popular comic book and movie heroes, the Avengers. Yeah, right, right. So um, it's pretty common for people to say revenge instead of avenge. And it's certainly the more common word. But some people are bothered by this. I mean, it bothers me a little bit. <laughs> Enough that I try not to do it. But it's so common that it's probably not a big deal. Yes. Okay. So if you want to pay attention to this, the idea is if you seek revenge in the pursuit of justice, you want to avenge wrongs, not revenge them. On the other hand, here is one that I do like holding on to the distinction, sarcastic and ironic. Yeah. Um, you see this in discussions of uh, online posts, for instance, on Facebook or whatever, and people using sarcastic when they just mean ironic or the reverse. Irony can be witty and clever without meaning to hurt anybody, but sarcasm is meant to mock or wound somebody. Irony can just be a matter of amusement. But uh, if you're being sarcastic, it really expresses malice. You're trying to really hurt somebody's reputation or insult them or something. They're not the same thing. No. Uh, okay, here's one that everybody wants to know, I'm sure. It's a burning desire. What's the difference between this S? you putting the S on the end of the word uh, backward and backwards. Right. Is there any difference or what's going on with that? Yeah, you don't want to get this one on backwards. Okay. <laughs> As an adverb, they're interchangeable. So you can put a shirt on backward or put the shirt on backwards. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to object to either one of those. However, it's an adjective. Only backward will do. It's a backward glance. Not a backwards glance. Not a backwards glance. Well, a backwards glance, to me anyway, it puts a strange picture in my head of... A backwards glance, it almost seems impossible to do. But a backward glance just turns your head and moves your eyes back. Yeah. I can picture that. And yeah, it's subtle, but I, and I don't know why it doesn't work exactly. But yeah, I see your point. And because uh, backward without the S is the more common word, again, I just suggest that when you're in doubt, just use backward. You have a good chance of being right. Mm-hmm. Well, here's one that people confuse. It's not necessarily confusing, just misused or redundancy, really. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about price point not being a redundancy necessarily because it has a particular use for a particular thing. But uh, there is no difference, is there, between rate of speed and just speed? Right, yeah. So um, people often say it was going at a high rate of speed. Um, that really 
is unnecessary. It makes sense to say he's going at a high rate. Well, he's traveling at a high rate, let's say, driving at a high rate, or traveling at a high speed, but not rate of speed. Yeah, speed automatically suggests that there's a rate going on. Right. Right, so you don't really need both words. Here's another subtle one, and we um, don't use these too often anymore, but it's useful if you're reading, especially if you're reading older literature, to understand that there could be a difference between presently and currently. Yeah, this is one that I think is sort of antique. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But you'll still run into people who argue that you shouldn't say presently to say, um, presently I'm wearing a T-shirt with my favorite rock group's name on it. Actually, presently, I'm wearing a T-shirt with common errors in English picture on it that <laughs> you picked out. The official uniform of the uh, common errors in English usage podcast. Yeah, maybe we could link to a photograph of that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so originally it meant soon. So I'll do it presently. I will do it soon. That meaning is almost entirely died out. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure that it's worth hanging on to that distinction. If you want to talk about something that's happening right now, these people think you should say currently rather than presently. But uh, that's a bit antiquated. It reminds me of the uh, evolution of the word anon, mm-hmm. right? which in Shakespearean English meant immediately, I'll do it right away. But notably in uh, the plays about Falstaff, it gets used by people who are not doing what they say they're doing. They say, he says, come fetch me a flagon. And the server says, Anon, which means I'm coming right away. But actually they don't, they keep stalling. And so that was so common and got used that way so much that Anon came to mean eventually stalling later. Um, Eventually, I'll get around to it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. If you are reading something older, some older literature, and they say she'll be here presently, it could be useful to know that that means soon. Right, because it'd be very confusing. Otherwise, if it meant in the present, why are you using the would-be form of the verb? Right, yeah. How about the next item on the list? We have intricate and integral. They sound very similar. Yeah, every once in a while you'll see people talking about something technical and they aren't really technically oriented themselves. And they'll say that this was an intricate part of a machine and they don't mean that it was complex. They meant it was an integral part of the machine. And uh, so that turns up a lot. Also, uh, very often it's mispronounced and misspelled integral. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's integral, not integral. To be intricate, something would have to be very sophisticated. Yeah. A single part couldn't be an intricate part of a machine, but the uh, many parts working together could be intricate. Sure. And in an intricate machine, there would be a lot of integral parts. Right. How about the difference between barter and haggle? We don't do either of these very often. but mm. Well, um, on the web, I find more and more people engaging in barter and... Um, Sometimes somebody will barter a service like, I'll clean your house if you give me your spare mattress or whatever. Um, But when you offer to trade something for something else, you're engaged in barter. It used to be that Americans could get all kinds of things uh, traveling abroad for Levi's 501s. They were 
highly desirable, especially in the old Soviet Union. So if you wanted to acquire something neat as a souvenir, you could barter your jeans. They had great value there. And yeah, you could use that as barter. If you're trying to buy something and the vendor is saying, uh, I want $25 for this, and you're saying, well, it looks like to me like it's worth about 10 you're haggling or bargaining. That's not bartering. Using the word barter, substituting for the word haggle, might be thinking of the word bargaining also. Right. Trying to get a bargain. And because they're both have to do with uh, exchanges of goods, buying goods, and so on, I can kind of see where that confusion might come in. But it's uh, you just kind of have to remember that barter is trading one item for the other, and haggling is actually trying to reduce the price that you're going to be paying for the item. Yeah, and that reminds me of uh, an interesting use of Hagler. The New York Times every other week has a Sunday column by somebody who's called the Hagler, who is a consumer complaint person. People write in their problems with various businesses or offices, and and, uh, he tries to contact the place and work it out and negotiate back and forth with them to resolve whatever the dispute is. Doesn't it sound like traditional haggling to me? It's kind of an unusual name for it, but the, the word haggle has gotten sort of reappropriated there to a different use. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, let's leave the list there for now. We have lots more of these confusing or often interchanged words that shouldn't always be used interchangeably. Uh, get back to that another time. But I'd like to come back to this now and again because I do find these little shades of meaning to be pretty interesting and interesting kinds of errors. But thanks for running down this partial introduction to this list. Sure, that was fun. All righty, yeah. Thanks, Paul. So much. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.